Okay. Thank you very much for uh, allowing me to come and speak on these subjects of in the footsteps of John Wesley. Uh, I don't want you to be mistaken. I am no church historian. Uh, I just do it as a bit of a hobby, really, to, to fill my time. I'm married. And, uh, <laughs> I have no children. Uh, my wife says I am the children. So, uh, so I'm a bit more free than a lot of pastors in the ministry, but I spend most of my time studying God's Word, and I feel a little bit naked standing here without a Bible in front of me, no text. And uh, I've been preaching my way through the Bible since 1985, and uh, I'm now on my 48th book. Just take it chunk by chunk, and we're getting to the tough stuff now. Leviticus. Uh, just been through Second Kings. It's nearly killed the church, but... <laughs> I can tick the box and say, Lord, I've done it. And when I see Jeremiah, he'll say, thank you, David, for, for keeping this alive. <laughs> Likewise, I don't want you to think that uh, there's no good in the Methodist church. We know that after John Wesley died, Methodism exploded. But I don't want you to think that was the end of Methodism. And if you go from the death of John Wesley, even up till today, there are some good Methodist people who, who really love the Lord. And I think of people like... As I look back in church history, Peter McKenzie, who was a very powerful evangelist and is buried in Dewsbury. I think of Herbert Silverwood. Maybe so you've heard Herbert Silverwood preach. Uh, W.E. Sangster. My mother heard Sangster preach in, uh, in Byron Furness. Great man of God. Cecil Pawson, the father of David Pawson, was a real soul winner and, and a very kind of keen, keen Methodist. In the area that I come from was a man called Eddie Brewer who was a Methodist about to sign up for the Billy Graham uh, evangelistic team, but then was tragically killed in a car crash before he could fulfill that. So there have been good people uh, in the Methodist church. Don't you think I'm putting the Methodist church down? However, it almost seems that after John Wesley died, the lid came off. Almost really what has happened in Libya, with Colonel Gaddafi out of the way, suddenly everything explodes. The same as what has happened in Iraq. And sometimes it happens in very big churches when you have a very powerful, uh, influential character that when they leave, almost everything seems to fall apart. Some folks say, oh, it's not like it used to be. No, because he was so strong, he was sitting on the lid. And now he's gone, everything kind of comes to the surface. And so with a character like John Wesley, even though he was very small, he, uh, he weighed no heavier than nine stone. He was about five foot three inches tall. Only, even though he was a little man, when he got off the lid, everything sort of happened. And, and one group of people who came out that I've never heard anyone speak on before, very few people refer to, is the Independent Methodists. And the reason why I want to speak on the Independent Methodists is because they are still functioning today. So here we are, 220 years after their birth, and, and they're still going on. And uh, I was allowed to go into the archives of the Independent Methodists in Wigan. So when you think of Wigan, think of the pier. Think of Bradley Wiggins. Think of uh, Uncle Joe's Mint Balls. Okay, and also think of the Independent Methodist archives. And I went down there. They were very kind to me. And for me, it's wonderful. It's like being in a sweet shop, just handling books from the very beginning and reading obituaries and, and reading life stories of some of these pioneers of the Independent Methodists. And I was certainly on holy ground. One of the men who rebelled after John Wesley died was a man called Alexander Killam. He died quite young. That's not because he rebelled. He was born in Epworth, the famous Epworth, and he was appointed by John Wesley as one of his preachers. But after John Wesley died, he became quite vocal, saying, the Methodist Church is losing it, and what are we doing about it? And it seems that in those days, the Methodist Church had this policy, if you don't like it, get out. In fact, we'll make the decision for you. We're putting you out. And we saw they did that with Hugh Bourne and William Klaus. We saw they did that with uh, William O'Brien. And Alexander Killen, this itinerant Methodist preacher, said, we're stifling our evangelism. We've lost it. They said, get out. And so he was put out. And, and he formed what was called the Methodist New Connection. In those days, the word connection was almost a key word. And so you had the primitive Methodist connection, the new Methodist. Everything was connection. So he then became the leader of the New Methodist Connection. Then sadly he died quite young and, uh, and the baton was passed on and eventually they got swallowed up in, in the big takeover. Other people were unhappy. 
And the Independent Methodists are, are basically a northern gathering of, of Methodists. And they started off in Warrington. And a number of people said, we're not happy with what's going on in the church. We need to get out. And they came out and they called themselves Quaker Methodists. That's quite an interesting uh, combination, Quaker Methodists. And one of their leaders was a young man who was converted in his teens called Peter Phillips, born in 1778 and died in 1853. And if you're interested, he's actually buried in Warrington Central Cemetery, just a stone's throw from George Formby. Uh, how interesting. You know, there's, there's George Formby cleaning windows and uh, watching the girls go by. And then said, oh, there's David Earnshaw with his camera, I'm here. And, uh, and, then, and then just a few, few yards away is this, this incredible man who really was the pioneer of, of the independent Methodist. So typical of those days, one of 12 children. You can almost read the script yourself. Very nice mother, abusive father, you know, a drunkard, a swearer, a hard man to live with. As a young boy, he was taken along to hear John Wesley preached and was deeply impressed. And in his teenage years, committed his life to Christ and at 18 felt uneasy in the church where he'd come to the Lord and said, I've got to get out of this. Someone told him the Quaker Methodist, he joined, he threw his lot in with them, and, and, and that's history. What an interesting combination, Quaker Methodist. The Quakers were founded by Mr. Fox, George Fox, who had no time for the Anglican Church. And the Methodists, founded by John Wesley, who could never leave the Anglican Church. So what a kind of, almost an oxymoron. I'm an honest politician. That's an oxymoron. Okay. And, uh, and here's another one. I'm a Quaker Methodist. And furthermore, we know that the Methodists, in those early days, seemed to be rather exuberant in their worship and their praise, yet the Quakers noted for their silence. And, and their early services were, were quite an interesting combination. I don't know if they were kind of mildly, I just say mildly, charismatic or Pentecostal. That they had exuberant singing of the hymns of John Wesley, and strong praying, passionate evangelism, but also times of quietness in their meetings when they waited for God to speak. Almost like, dare I say this, this is not Pentecostal or charismatic, in the early days of the Plymouth Brethren, the reason why they gathered around the Lord's table was for the Spirit to move. And, and for people to bring a word to encourage the people of God. And the early Plymouth brethren were far more open than, than their kind of distant relatives who were nearer to us in time. And so they were an interesting combination of people. Peter Phillips started to mature very, very quickly as a young man in his 20s. He got married. He heard of Lorenzo Dow, this thin kind of difficult American character, the man who I said I was preached with, is back to an open door. And uh, the man that the American Methodist didn't like, but he said, well, like me or not, I'm going to preach. You're not telling me where to preach and how to preach. He came to Ireland. Then he came to Liverpool. Then he came to the Northwest. Peter Phillips heard of him. And the fact that the English Methodist didn't like him didn't faze him at all because he'd come out of the Methodist church anyway. So he said to Peter Phillips, while you are in this part of the world, our home is your home. And so it was Peter Phillips and his wife who gave hospitality to Lorenzo Dow and his wife. And while the Dows were here in Warrington, Mrs. Dow gave birth to a little girl, and sadly she died. And if you go to Friars Green in Warrington, I don't know if anyone's from that part of the world, you'll find there uh, an independent Methodist chapel. Sadly, they car parked over the graveyard, but Lorenzo Dow's little daughter is buried there. And... Uh, Peter Phillips was deeply influenced by the preaching of Lorenzo Dow. Now, you need to understand, another group of Methodists in those days who came out of Methodism were called the Free Gospelers. Now, I think you'll probably find the independent Methodists probably more interesting for a whole list of reasons, and some of it is because it's very practical and it touches where we are. Who were the Free Gospelers? They believe passionately that no one should ever have to pay to hear the gospel. And the Quaker Methodists, you know, you have a blank piece of paper, and who wouldn't like a blank piece of paper? And sometimes the reason why new fellowships start is because there's so much baggage where the people are. They say, I want to get out of this, and with a blank piece of paper, write my own script. 
So here are the Quaker Methodists saying, what do we believe? We believe in worshipping God, evangelizing the lost, and listening for God to speak. So let's put that in our meetings, and let's make it free. Now, uh, that was a blatant rejection of Anglicanism and Methodism in those days, and this will become apparent in a few minutes. Now, our local Anglican church, and I say this carefully, uh, is not evangelical, but the minister is evangelical with a small e. I don't know if you kind of have that grading system, kind of small e, capital E, double e. Okay, He's, he's a nice man, he's, he's a very gentle man, and he's trying to just bring in a little bit of the gospel. Okay? So I was, I was driving past while writing these notes, not at the same time, but within the same week. And, and this notice board kept catching my eye, so I stopped. Okay? Quiz night. Quiz night. Excellent cuisine. You know, wonderful questions. Why not bring a team? Bring your bottle. £7.50. Now, I can see what he's doing. You see, he's trying to get people from the village going... Let's go along, you know, let's make a team. And you can see what's going to happen, a little epilogue at the end. Okay, if that's what he wants to do, that's between him and his conscience and his PCC. But 750. 750. The free gospelers would say, that is criminal. Get rid of that. If the church cannot pay to evangelize the lost, there's something seriously wrong. Yet you will be amazed, am I allowed to say this, and I don't know anyone's agenda here, you'll be amazed at how often people now put on evangelistic events that you have to pay to to go. George Fox was uh, a man who had no real love in his heart for, for the Anglican Church, but he went along, and then obviously he came out. In 1651, he was in an Anglican Church when the vicar announced his text, Her, everyone that thirsteth, let him come freely without money and without price. You know the text. You know the gospel's free. You come freely. We have what George Fox then said. He stood up and he heckled the vicar. And here are the literal words that he said to the vicar after having quoted that text. Come down, thou deceiver and hireling. For dost thou bid people come freely and take of the water of life freely? And yet thou takest 300 pounds from them for preaching this scripture to them. Did not Christ command his ministers, freely you have received, freely give? I think we'll sing the final hymn and have a little chat. <laughs> and you can see his point. You know, here you are saying to the people, the gospel's free. But you're on a whacking salary to say that. And who's paying that salary? Well, the church is paying it. Okay, maybe there's some gaps in his thinking, but we understand what he's saying. Never in their entire history, even until this very moment, have the independent Methodists paid their ministers. So, well, well how do they survive? Well, they pay his travelling expenses, believing that if we're going to bring a man from A to B, we're asking him to come and preach, so we'll pay his travelling expenses. We'll give him a nice cup of tea, but first of all, he must feed himself and his family before he starts preaching. And so when I went down to the headquarters of the Independent Methodist, I was speaking to two, two ministers. One had just retired, one wasn't retired. Uh, and uh, they spoke about how all their life they have worked in a, in a job in, in different industries. And uh, they've done their pastoral work in the evening. And uh, if there's been a funeral, obviously they've had to see the family in the evening. And, uh, and then speak to their boss to say, is it all right if I have an afternoon off because I've got to bury a church member? And both men said, throughout our entire lives of being involved in the independent Methodist, our, our different companies have been very kind to us. We've made it up other ways, but that's how we've worked. Now, that is quite radical in this day and generation. Someone says, I feel called to the ministry. That's great. Well, you carry on doing your job and you, you do it at weekends. Well, that's not the ministry. Well, you try telling that an independent Methodist. And we had a very interesting discussion, they did and I, don't know what they said after I'd gone about all my questions, going, well, do you not get tired? You know, after a full day's work, maybe studying to, to produce two sermons on a Sunday or do a Bible study? 
they have a bit of interaction among their churches to take the pressure off, thinking, well, at least you can preach that twice and go to a couple of churches. But still that pressure is there. And then we're back to this whole business of people in the professional ministry who probably preach once a fortnight and then say, would you pray for me? I've got a message to prepare. How interesting. While I am not a Quaker Methodist, I have to say quite passionately that I am a free gospeler. And I said this carefully, but I'm trying to make church history relevant and interesting. I have seen so many people look to the church for the means of their support. And so what happens? You meet people in two capacities. Number one, people who've never really made it in the real world, but get into the Christian church and go from Christian organization to Christian organization to Christian organization. And, and, and you know, they're doing the Lord's work. And we need to support them in their Lord's work. Well, what's, what's the rest of the congregation doing? Are they not doing the Lord's work? And you know, sometimes these people need to get out into the world and get themselves a proper job. And secondly, the other problem is this, there are people who then do O-levels, A-levels, then become apprentice in the church, then feel called to ministry, so they do a couple of years in a Bible college, then they come into either the role of a youth worker or a pastor or assistant pastor, they go onto the mission field and they have never ever lived in the real world. But I'm so glad I, I trained in horticulture when I left school. I did an apprenticeship in horticulture and did a little bit of work for the National Trust and Liverpool Botanical Gardens. And, and I'm so glad that when I felt called to ministry, my father said, you carry on working, my boy. And what was interesting talking to these independent Methodists was this. They said, you see, we have a ready-made congregation with the people that we work with. And, and we hear a great deal, and I, and I appreciate, I, I'm just trying to get your thinking, and I haven't got all the answers. We hear a great deal these days about pre-evangelism and building bridges, because most of us who are in the communication business in the church are so removed from the people we're trying to communicate to. I sometimes say to my wife, maybe I should work in McDonald's one night a week. can't do that, Pastor. I mean, what, what will people think? Not that I need the money. do like burgers and chips, but putting that aside. <laughs> putting that aside, I, I know that as soon as you get into the professional ministry, it alienates you from people. And when I was on the road for three and a half years before coming to the present church, I'm now pastor, and after leaving the last church, I've said before many times, I spoke to more people in three and a half months about the Lord Jesus Christ, in three and a half years, about the Lord Jesus Christ than I did in the previous 20 odd years. Because as soon as you say you're a minister, folks shut down. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the ministry is wrong, and it's wrong to be paid. I'm just telling you what was going on with these free gospels. And so the independent Methodist said, no, we need men at the coalface of life doing it. And that folk can see, like the Apostle Paul, they're making tents at night, sewing away and doing their business, and they're not saying to the church, we need you to support us. Hugh Bourne and William Clowes, the primitive Methodist leaders, were big friends with Peter Phillips. It's not too far away from here to Warrington. But they did not see eye to eye on this business of the free gospel. In fact, when William Clowes was, was really being used of God, two, two men, two businessmen, said to William Clowes, if you hang up your potter's wheel, we pledge ourselves to give you a basic income to free you up for evangelism. And that's what he did. And that takes great commitment from people. They saw things differently. But what is, I find very encouraging is they didn't fall out. They agreed to disagree. And the independent Methodists and the primitive Methodists in the early days, while the pioneers were still alive, worked closely together with great respect for each other. What is interesting is that when you turn to Acts chapter 15, when Paul and Barnabas fell out of whether they should take John Mark again. Luke uses a very interesting word. It's the word paroxysm, which in colloquial terms means Paul flipped. He was livid. There was none of that here. They, they spoke graciously to each other and said, where we can help each other, we'll help each other, but we just see things differently. They then agreed that Quaker Methodist sounds a bit strange because people are getting all confused. 
So they said, let's call ourselves the Independent Methodists. And that's what they're known as even today. Let me say three things about them as Independent Methodists. Why Methodists? Because they were not ashamed to walk in the footsteps of John Wesley. John Wesley had many faults, and, and we can see that, that they acknowledged he was a man owned of God who was passionate about reaching the lost. And they said, we want the world to know we're not ashamed to walk in those kind of shoes. And also, John Wesley was passionate about holiness. Remember John Wesley's motto? To spread scriptural holiness throughout the land. That was his motto. And I know that John Wesley's theology on holiness is probably a long way from where our theology is, but I sometimes think that his, his, his trying to explain it was, was not as good as his experience. Almost like Ezekiel in chapter 1, he has a glimpse of the presence of God and says, I saw an appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, obviously he's had some encounter with God that he's trying to put into words and he can't. And while I'm a long way removed from John Wesley with his scriptural holiness, I have to say, putting that aside, this man had a passion to be like the Lord. These days, scriptural holiness is hard to find. Kind of you preach scriptural holiness and thought, are you being legalistic? Really? We've got to be different from the world. And, and so they were strong on, on their witnessing and also we need to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. They believed in entire sanctification. Secondly, they believed that each church was solely responsible for its actions. And, and, and they saw the dangers of the Methodist church, you know, kind of understood how it started, but suddenly it finished up with this big conference saying, yes, no, you go, you stay. Hang on, they said, that's not how it should work. So each congregation was independent. And even today, the independents are independent. It's not that all the independents get together and say, right, this is our denominational policy. They talk, they listen to each other, they're there to encourage each other, almost like what we're doing at this conference. You know, there's no kind of big statement, you know, this is FEW. We're passionate about the Lord Jesus, but we're not here to say, oh, by the way, we don't like what you're doing in your society. And, and to be honest, you're not coming next year. Well, so far anyway. <laughs> there may be a letter in the post, I just don't know. But uh, they were there to encourage each other, but at the end of the day they said, each church is autonomous. And, and, and each church stands or falls by its own decisions. And thirdly, they believed that, that working class people should be running the church for working class people. And uh, by and large... The independent Methodists in those days were very, very working class. Not all of them. You've got to understand, you see, they're based in places like Bolton, Wigan, Warrington, all these northern towns that were known for their, for their coal mining, their cotton mills, and their industry. And uh, Peter Phillips, their leader, was a self-employed carpenter and spent his entire life working with wood and then seeking to pastor a church and evangelize in the meantime. And uh, they fought desperately against poverty and deprivation and social injustice. It was a grassroots denomination. What is helpful for, for me as I look at the independent Methodists, as we've looked at the primitive Methodists and we've looked at the, the Bible Christians, both were revival movements. And we read it and go, oh, the church growth blows me away. Never experienced that before, you know. When you come to the independents, they knew touches of the Holy Spirit, but they never knew revival like those two other branches of Methodism. It was kind of hard slog with touches of the Spirit now and then. And we go, Lord, that's where we are. And I think always, if we're honest, we look back on our lives and go, that was a purple passage. Didn't realize at the time, but I look back and go, that was a purple passage. Thank you, Lord. And, and that's what I kind of find very encouraging about the independent Methodists. Number one, let me say this, they were passionate gospel preachers. Why did they exist in those early days? They existed because they believed that the Wesleyans weren't communicating the gospel, but just becoming very institutionalized. So their idea was, we exist to get the message out to as many people as possible. 
And what better way of getting it out than working with them, living with them, and saying, look at the way we live, look at the way we speak, look at the way we bring up our children. This is how you should do it. And one of the problems, I think I mentioned it last time when I was giving these talks in a different capacity, because we're now in a very, very mobile society and most of us travel to church, we're accountable to nobody. I say to my shame, but it's just the way the logistics have worked out. I live six miles from the church I pastor, which is a shock for me because normally I, I've lived on the doorstep of both churches and, and after a couple of years everyone knew who I was. When you're living in the countryside, it's very difficult. And so last year in my pastoral visiting, I drove 24,000 miles because of the nature of, of where I am. I don't want to say my parish, but because of the nature. And because you don't live in a close-knit community, many of us don't, or people live in one community and go to the church in the next community, it's very difficult to say to people, have you seen how I treat my wife? Have you seen how I look after my house? How I treat the neighbours? That kind of account, it doesn't matter. Well, you live your life, I live my life. And no one really knows who I am. But these men and women were right there in the community living with these kind of people. Uh, and Samuel Ashton, one of their evangelists, said this, it was delightful to see the poor colliers with their black faces listening with the deepest attention to the word of life. Secondly, they did not ignore the times in which they were living. This is where it gets tricky. 200 years ago this year, the, uh, the Peterloo Massacre took place in Manchester. I don't know how much you know about the Peterloo Massacre, but... Basically, people in the north felt very hard done by by the government. Trying to keep it very simple, it had to do with parliamentary representations. If you know, we're, we're not really being represented uh, in uh, in Westminster. We don't like the way the systems work. Listen to us, please. And about 80,000 people gathered in Manchester to say to the government, "Would you please take note of the north of England?" What was the government's response? Send in the troops. Fifteen people were shot. It was a peaceful demonstration. Fifteen were shot. Nearly 500 people were seriously injured and four were imprisoned. And who was in the midst of all that? The independent Methodists, because their people were involved. And it gets very difficult because we are not sort of independent when it comes to politics. We all have our own opinions. And what does the church do when... when the people in the church agree with what's going on, thinking, yeah, this is terrible. Our people are being downtrodden, and we just turn a blind eye. The Methodist church said, do not get involved with this Peterloo process. Just, just avoid it. The independent Methodists stood with members who stood and marched in the protest. And so they got involved in, in politics. Some say that it's terrible, they shot themselves in the foot. But when you're in a... I lived in South Wales during the last big miners' strike. And, and lived right next to one colliery. And saw all the stuff, you know, scumbag written on the road, saw the picket lines, saw all the coal wagons. You cannot be indifferent, like you are at 6 o'clock watching the news with a cup of tea in your hand, when it's happening on your front doorstep. What do you do? It's very, very difficult. The independents said, we've got to support our people. They're, they're struggling, they're being downtrodden. The Methodist church said, don't get involved. And, and some people had to leave the Methodist church and they said, well, we'll stand with the independents. They've got a heart for us. And uh, in fact, an independent Methodist church was formed in Bolton out of those who agree with the Peterloo Massacre, not the good grounds for a church plant. <laughs> they were known as the Radicals. I'm preaching in the Radical Chapel this Sunday. <coughs> yeah. And thirdly, money was always a big issue. I love that quotation by Voltaire. When a man says, it's not the money but the principle, it's the money. <laughs> it's a great quotation. Pastor, it's, it's not the money, it's the principle. No, it's the money. <laughs> and uh, the Napoleonic War of, of 1815, when it ended, it created mass unemployment in this country. And, and people were in dire straits. Now, the Methodist Church said, you have to pay your subscription every week. So here you are, 
you're in the north of England, you've been made unemployed, you go into the Methodist Church, and the Methodist Church says, if you're a member, you pay that. And they had men whose job it was to go around members saying, where's your subscription this week? Now, in the north of England at that time, uh, the annual salary for a working class man was £50 per annum. The annual salary for a Methodist minister at that time was £200 per annum. Okay? You put yourself in the shoes of a man living in Bolton. He's, he's unemployed. He's just come back from the Napoleonic Wars. You know, he can't get a job. Things are pretty grim. There's no social services. Your family's part of the Methodist Church. And, and Okay, we've noticed you haven't paid your subscription for the last four weeks. Where is it? Well, I'm, you know, I'm using all the money I've got to keep my family alive. Yeah, but what about the church? And that made many, many people leave the church, come out of the Methodist church. And uh, there's a famous incident over in Liverpool by a man <coughs> involving a man called Thomas Fund, uh, called Thomas Jones. And uh, he was told by the Methodist conference, if people don't pay their subscription, they'll not be allowed in the future to claim from the poor fund. You know, it, almost like an insurance policy. You haven't paid it, you're not pulling out. And you know, you know, you can't run the church like that. Someone comes in dire need, and you say, "Sorry, you're not a member here. Sorry, you haven't paid in." It's a club, isn't it? And so Thomas Jones said, "If this is the heart of the church, I've got to get out of this." And so he came out of the church in Liverpool, along with others, and, and they formed another independent church. Money was very, very important. In the early 1820s. There were around 70 independent Methodist chapels primarily in the north of England. And they, like the primitive Methodists and the Bible Christians, were keen on adult conversion but also committed to reaching out to young people. All of them were, hence the reason why they had massive big Sunday schools. And as well as teaching the gospel, they were also teaching children to read and write. Radicals almost having to do that these days, you know. Folk are experts on their Apple and iPad, but can you write a letter? Can't even read what you've written. So Sunday schools were, were kind of social, practical, spiritual places. Jabez Bunting, who was the official successor to John Wesley, he was in favour of Sunday schools, but he said, don't teach them to write. He said, there's no need for a child to learn to write on the Sabbath there's no telling where it may lead to. And furthermore, you don't need to write to become a Christian. So just teach them to read the gospel, but not write it. What book was he reading? Again, what kind of planet was he on? And you can see this kind of social concern then. Here's, here's a number of churches in working class situations saying, we understand you, Dan Tron. We're trying to help you. We understand you haven't got much money. We don't want any money from you because we have no establishment to support. All that we've got to do is pay the man's expenses and the chapel heating. We're here for you. And by the way, your children can't read? Bring them to Sunday school and we'll, we'll spend half an hour teaching them to read and to write and then also we'll tell them about the love of the Lord Jesus and also we'll give them a bit of food. Incredibly practical and down-to-earth people. Their early evangelism was uh, done through street evangelism and, uh, and, and chapel preaching. And uh, they had some incredibly gifted evangelists. And for me, I found it very moving because, you know, you can, you can find books galore on John Wesley. You can find books on the Bible Christians and, and, and the primitive Methodists and Spurgeon. And it's almost like the BBC, isn't it? You think, not another Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> you know, not another Great Expectations, you know. Do something different. And in the Christian world, you know, you come across, you know, the usual 10, 15 world-famous Christians. For me, it was exciting just going through the archives of the independent Methodists, just following through the lives of some of their evangelists. You've never heard of them. Joseph Birchall, 1826-1909. His obituary said this. He preached justification by faith and the witness of the Spirit and his hearers felt the influence of the Spirit as he preached the word. These themes were realities to him. 
And I say, look, isn't that wonderful? 150 years ago, here's a man in Bolton and Wigan preaching justification by faith, the witness of the Spirit, and these were realities to him. What we do is nothing new. William Sanderson. William Sanderson was a Liverpoolian, 1811 to 1899. One of ten children. Nine, so himself and eight of his siblings, all came to faith in Christ. And uh, he was a tailor by trade. And uh, in the Methodist church, he felt exercised to be an evangelist. And so the Methodist church paid him to stop being a tailor, but to be an evangelist. And so he went all around Liverpool and what we now call Merseyside and parts of Lancashire and Cheshire evangelizing. But the more he did it, he felt uncomfortable. He said, I, I feel uneasy taking people from people, taking money from people, when I could really look after myself. And furthermore, I'm not really engaging people. So he went back to being a tailor and left the Methodist church and became an independent Methodist. Wow. You said, so these people have some incredible convictions. I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip. <laughs> because I also am paid by the church. I'm just trying to tell you historically what these people were doing. And, and he, he spent his life preaching the gospel in Liverpool. He didn't come out of the Wesleyan Methodists right away when he went back to being a tailor. What flipped it for him was this. He went back to being a tailor during the day and at nights and at weekend was evangelizing. With winter coming and, and bad weather, he thought, I'll, I'll hire a hall so if it's really, really wet, I can say to people, by the way, folks, let's go into that hall and continue our meeting. And they did that in those days. When the Methodists heard that he was hiring a non-church building to preach the gospel, they said, that's got to stop. You can't do that. You know, you do it under, under our umbrella, not in some independent hall. And again, he's, these people have lost the plot. And said, if that's what you say, I'm sorry, I've got to carry on. These folk will never come into our chapel, but they'll stand on a street corner and they'll come into a hall if I invite them. So that's how the Independent Methodist Church started in, uh, in Liverpool. I hunted out his grave. You know how I do these kind of things. He's, uh, he's, uh, he's, I'm sure I'm on so much CCTV. Or... What's this man doing in this cemetery? I, I went into Anfield Cemetery, just, just by Anfield where Liverpool play. And, uh, and I found the grave of William Sanderson. Thousands stood around his grave when he was buried. And this is what the preacher said. This man will be welcomed on the other side by hundreds, if not thousands, whom he has led to the Lord Jesus. I wish someone would say that at my grave. Never mind a stone. This man led hundreds to the Lord Jesus. And again, we're back to this business. If only Methodism had embraced William Sanderson. Think of the impact on Methodism. John Knowles. How about this? This is a man who's an agricultural worker in Cheshire, working again five, five and a half days a week. He evangelized for 55 years. At his funeral, it was declared he had preached 6,000 times and traveled over 60,000 miles, mostly on foot. And then it said, footnote, but with some help by rail. <laughs> <coughs> okay, let's say 10,000 miles on train lines. Imagine walking 50,000 miles, preaching 6,000 times, and holding down a job five days a week. You think, what were these men feeding on? Incredible man. William Oxley, R.B. Woods, Great evangelist. Matthew Kennedy. I went to, uh, to Southport to find the grave of Matthew Kennedy. And uh, interesting grave. In, in the archives, I came across this about, about uh, the preaching of Matthew Kennedy, which is so typical as you go through it. We have recently concluded a week's special services conducted by Mr. Matthew Kennedy, connectional evangelist. And are pleased to report... Over 40 decisions have come over to the Lord Jesus. 
Some 20 of these are members of the Christian Endeavour Society, which we think is evidence of the usefulness of this agency in our church life. Many of the others are now in attendance at the various class meetings. Our Sunday congregations have been larger, the spiritual life of our members better, and altogether, the church has been greatly blessed by this mission. Forty. In a week's evangelism. Uh, and he was a Southport evangelist. I could go on. Just, just, I've got to go back to the archives. It just, it just does your soul good. They also employed outside evangelists. Heard a man called Richard Weaver? If you can get hold of the biography of Richard Weaver, you think you can get second-hand copies on Amazon. Interesting read. Very powerful, powerful evangelist. Also Henry Moorhouse. He's the man that eventually finished up preaching for, for D.L. Moody, that great story of him preaching on John 3.16. These were down-to-earth, nitty-gritty, northern evangelists. And, and the independents would use them. And then trouble came. There's always trouble at Melinda. Some said, I think we are being held back in our church growth because we are not paying evangelists. And, and why I understand you shouldn't pay ministers, and we're not going against that, I, I think we should be releasing men just to preach the gospel so they haven't got to worry about, about uh, where they get their money from. And after much debate... It didn't split the denomination, but after much debate, they agreed to pay the salary of two full-time evangelists. Some were horrified. We're going back on our principles. Others said, if we'd have done this 50 years ago, we'd be a lot stronger. And so they, they started to grow. Membership, 1871, 3,496 members and 87 chapels. By 1911, 8,316 members, 159 chapels. 1914, 81 of their chapels were less, than, were less than 30 years old, and only 15 were over 50 years old. And then they peaked and started to go down. In their early days, what is interesting, there was trouble with the primitive Methodists, and 120 primitive Methodist chapels came over from primitive Methodism to the independents. By 1870, only seven of them were still left. And, and William Sanderson, that man who was buried at Anfield, said, we have been too keen to welcome these malcontents. This is not church growth. How interesting. Small issues often cause lots of trouble. A big issue in the church was temperance. Should a man drink or should a man not drink? Now, we have to understand, I mean... We now know a lot more about alcohol than those men did. In those days, alcohol was, was seen as a strong meal for working men because it contained lots of nutrients. The village that I live in used to have the largest psychiatric unit or hospital, hospital in, in the whole of, whole of Britain. 3,500 patients and, and 500 staff. My wife said, why are we living here, David? <laughs> oh, no, it's now been pulled down and houses are going up. Some wife had a brave idea, or a bright idea, let's open a brewery because beer's good for the mind. <laughs> and so every day, the patients in this psychiatric hospital had a pint of alcohol, Guinness, whatever it was, made in the hospital brewery. Mm, fascinating. Why? Because it was thought it was good for your mind, it was good for your body. Where were salaries paid in those days? In the pub. That's how people became very addicted to alcohol. And by the way, the independent Methodists used to drink. And while they didn't pay their preachers, you imagine, you're a, you're a farm labourer, you've walked ten miles to go and preach in that chapel that morning, that's a fair old whack. You're hungry, give them a pint of ale. And before... These men got into the pulpit. They had a pint of ale. They were never short on, on local preachers. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and the, idea was, the idea was, give this man a good meal, and then get him in the pulpit and preach. You know, preach from a full stomach, man. And, and, but after a while, folks started to say, hang on a minute. The evils of drink are, are, are not good and while we're giving our local preachers alcohol, we can take it. I don't think it's giving a good message. 
And, and so big discussion broke out, broke out over temperance. And in the end, they became mega supporters of the temperance movement. And uh, I could take you to, to the cemetery in Preston because Preston was almost the heart of the temperance movement with, with Mr. Livesey. And, and some of those big temperance founders were, were primitive Methodists and people who had a, a massive work to do in the independent Methodists. Eventually, after many years of debate, in 1917, they became a temperance denomination. And if you touched alcohol, you were not allowed to become a member. The Free Methodists used to have that. I think they're slowly changing that, if I understand correctly. If we implement that in our chapels, it would just be me and the wife, I think. <laughs> I'm not so sure about her as well. <laughs> In the things of God, I have generally noticed that the first generation has convictions, the second generation has beliefs, and the third generation has opinions. You see that in scripture, you see it in church history. So convictions, beliefs, this is my opinion. And that happened in every kind of... Uh, Methodist group that fractured from Methodism. It happened with the, with the independent Methodists as well. And uh, as time went on, because the second generation didn't have the fire of the first generation, the third generation didn't have the fire of the second generation, then slowly they started to decline. And, and that is true, to be honest, of, of most denominations. I mentioned that they had never knew revival, and that's true. But they did have some interesting times. In 1859, believe it or not, Charles Finney came to Bolton. I said, what was he doing in Bolton? And according to the independent Methodists, many souls were added to the kingdom and joined independence through Charles Finney coming to Bolton. That was most interesting to read. Never seen that anywhere in a book. And over the next couple of years, while flicking through the archives, I came across interesting little facts and snippets, reading their, 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 their monthly magazine, of, of what was happening in their churches. I, I envy this, and this is not revival like the primitives or the Bible Christians. Liverpool, 50 souls in seven weeks. Remember the old Baptist times, right at the back, it had baptisms for this month. You know, and it's quite, oh, we've had five, oh, we've had six. Oh, I forgot to say, we had one last month. We had seven, you know, kind of. And, and then they had this total for the end of the year. Liverpool, 50 souls in seven weeks. St. Helens, 130 souls in six weeks. Barnoldswick, 100 souls in six weeks. Batley, 140 joined the church. Those must be little moments when the Spirit came down upon churches. And sometimes that happens in a church's history. So they knew those kind of experiences. But generally speaking, the decline set in. And the decline that you find in the independent Methodist is what you find in nonconformity from 1851 onwards. Let me just mention four things about the decline and then finish with four simple facts, which, which is eight things altogether. <laughs> The first is this, buildings, and this keeps coming up with the primitives and, the, and, and with the Bible Christians, buildings seem to have this way of often getting in the way of the gospel. And we have this dilemma, you know, we're meeting in a, in a, in a, in a hall, we've got to keep bringing in chairs, it smells, we've got to wash it out, bring our own stuff in, screen, wires, all for our own place. And, there's that, and then you get your own place, and then you've got to pay for this and pay for that and so on. Having come from the northwest of England, I could take you around many of the Lancashire towns showing you nonconformist cathedrals. The congregations were the worst because the congregations were the richest, big mill owners. And I can take you around Blackburn and, and Darwin and Bolton, and you look at these massive chapels thinking, who on earth paid for that to be built? 
Brother Milner. There was a large congregational chapel in Bowden, which was, which was right next to this massive mill. And how about this? The heat from the mill heated the chapel. That's great, while the mill owner's alive. As soon as he dies, who's going to pay for this to be heated? Who's going to maintain all this? And, and while the independents didn't get sucked into that as much as the other non-conformists, projects and buildings did get in the way. And buildings are always secondary and have really nothing to do with the gospel. Secondly, the independent Methodists had no theological college. You say, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Even though they had no college, liberalism got in. And, and around the 1900s, 1910, 1920, it was vogue to be liberal. And uh, at the 1896 Free Church Congress, I, I really struggle with the expression free church. Free to believe what? I understand what free means, but people think it's almost a free throw. At the Free Church Congress, delegates from different non-conformist organizations were queuing up to stand and say to the whole Congress, Darwin is right and is the only way to understand Genesis 1-3. to which is exactly what Mr. Spurgeon had warned of with the downgrade controversy. And sad to say, the independent Methodists got sucked into that. There is interesting reading of a man called John Johnson in Sunderland who was standing in front of the independent Methodist conference begging them to get back to the integrity of Scripture. He said, this is God's word, it's true, it's right. Why are we listening to all this modern scholarship, which really is, is not modern at all, it's from the pit. Really kind of strong preaching. He was shouted down. Be real, live in the modern world, Mr. Johnson. What is tragic is that he was sadly killed, along with his son, in a train crash, and uh, burned to death. It's, it's a terrible, terrible story. And you read that and say, Lord, why is it that good men are almost removed? who were trying to hold back the denomination and say, let's get back to the scriptures. And so by the 1920s, most unconformist chapels were, in the words of the famous Richard Niebuhr, presenting a God without wrath, who brought man without sin, into a kingdom without judgment, through the ministrations of the Christ without a cross. Another man wrote this, decency, good living, and neighborliness provided the ethos of nonconformist life in general. Doctrine was a matter of disinterest to the average church member. Mission equaled the improvement of society rather than repentance and conversion. How interesting. So, 100 years ago. Thirdly, slowly, the social gospel crept in. And this is a dilemma we face all the time, isn't it? You know, if someone's in need, you can't say, you need Christ. No, no, you've got to feed them. You've got to clothe them. It's right, it's proper. You've got to give them the gospel sandwich, bread, but with the gospel in. <coughs> but it's, it's very hard to keep the gospel meat in between the bread week after week, month after month. It's very hard. And by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, and uh, I'm sure you've noticed this, I'm not being critical in any shape or form, people find it far easier to pray over physical needs than spiritual needs. Now, do not get me wrong. Physical needs are terrible. And when I've got stomachache or backache, you know, or those kind of things, or my toilet's broken or the heating's not working, I know about it. And the real issues. You go, I'm not so well spiritual. Well, I'm just praying today. And it's very easy in prayer meetings to focus on all the physical and forget the spiritual. And so... You know, we're going to raise money for a physical need, and this is, this, is a, this is a bag for the lost. That bag for physical needs will always have more money in it. <coughs> and sad to say, gradually social issues took over. There was a church in Bolton, Ford's Road Independent Methodist Church, that had their own library. You know, let's, let's put some good, wholesome books for people to come in and read, and let's put Christian books in between that they can read Christian books. Super idea. Guess what happened? One by one, the Christian books were filtered out until in the end it was just a social library. And 12 months ago, I was in a church library where that actually happened. I uh, 
So this library, the idea was those principals, let's put on a library that folk can come in, it's warm, it's clean, they can read good books. I was looking for Christian books. I think, well, where's the gospel? <coughs> in fact, it could have been the local branch of, uh, of the library. And fourthly, spiritual apathy came in. At the end of the 19th century, one man wrote of uh, the independent Methodist church in Batley. Whether this is unique to Yorkshire, I really don't know, but I'll just say it anyway. The Lord's Supper is only moderately attended. The class meeting much neglected. The band meeting almost forgotten. And the prayer meeting is dead. And Henry Barrett, one of their leaders, in 1927 wrote, There is not the same keenness, intensity, the great yearning and longing for the salvation of people as in our fathers 30 or 40 years ago. Let me tell you four things in closing that I trust you'll find very interesting that I've discovered during my research and just reading around and rooting around. Number one, William Brimelow, that's a great northern name, isn't it? It's like Unsworth. Eric Unsworth, William Brinelaw, 1837 to 1913, was the man who at one level tried to turn the denomination around and do good. He was a very influential president, and he was the first full-time editor of the Bolton Evening News. Smart man. One day, he received a letter from a young man down south saying, I'm a writer. And, and I wonder if you would serialize the book that I've written. And uh, he said, if I send it a, a chapter at a time, they did that in those days. You know, they didn't write a full book. They would serialize these things and folk would wait for the next edition. He said, if I send you a chapter at a time, would you, would you, would you consider it? And so he sent out the first few chapters and, and he read it. And he wrote back to the young man and said, this is, this is good. He said, uh, you keep them coming and we'll publish them. If there was anything risky, or in the words of uh, Godfrey, a bit near the bone, then uh, he would write back and say, no, no, that's, that's not good for my newspaper. I want wholesome writing, and sent it back. Who was that young man? Thomas Hardy. What was the book that he sent to him? Tess of the Devils. And, and, and William Brimelow, this independent man, with a passion to bring cleanness into the newspapers, he was that man who had a massive influence. Secondly, in 1813, a young Scotsman came down to High Lee in Cheshire. There's a High Lee in Cheshire, but there's no I in the Lee. And uh, I was there just a couple of months ago looking around for this place and found it and went into the building. He came down to work as a gardener, and uh, while he was there as a gardener, he was led to faith in Christ by a Wesleyan Methodist who, who went along to the local Methodist church. While he was there, he was reading the book of Romans and got saved, and then read about the call to go on the mission field, and it was while there he had this call to go out to Africa to be a missionary. Who was that man? James Moffat, who then became the father-in-law of David Livingston. Sometime later, that Methodist church at High Lee in Cheshire became so disillusioned with the Methodist church, they came out and became independent. And, and it's, it's a very tentative link, but they say, he was one of our boys. I understand your enthusiasm, and, and if you go there, you can see a monument to say, this is where James Moffat was converted and had his call for Africa, just off the M6. Thirdly, one of their biggest statesmen was a man called Alexander Denovan, 1794 to 1878. Methodism never really flourished in Scotland for a whole list of reasons. Denovan was converted at the age of 19 and then taught himself Greek and Hebrew in the evening. He had a burden through reading scripture of saying, there's lost people out there. No one really told me I was lost until I was late into my teens. I've got to tell people they're lost. And then offer them Christ. And so Alexander Denovan got around him a number of young men who felt the same. 
And when they read scripture, they believed, number one, it's plurality of leaders, not one man. And number two, we shouldn't charge for the gospel. And so these young men started a church in Glasgow on the principle of, we don't charge, we don't ask for money, we're working anyway, anyone wants to give money for the hire of a hall, that's fine by us, but we're just going to run it freely and we're going to go for the lost. He and his friends built up a church of 600 people in Glasgow that they led to the Lord. I know you like little snippets of news and... uh, He's, he's buried just a, a few stones away from Andrew Boner. And what is so typical of Alexander Denham, and he said, no gravestone. Why, we, why waste money on that? Let's spend our money on reaching the lost. I said in my heart, Alexander, a hundred pound wouldn't have done him any harm. But there we are. And then finally, leave the best till last. Horace Banner, 1906-1974. Horace Banner was a young independent Methodist who set sail for Brazil in 1928, aged 22. Mrs. C.T. Studd was so impressed with this young man that she contributed to his fare to go out to Brazil. So here he is. He's an independent Methodist. He's, He's 22, and he goes out to Brazil. Who did he go out to Brazil with? UF, UFM. How interesting. He went out to Brazil and was doing mission work out there. Sometime later, news came that three British missionaries who were working in Brazil had been murdered or disappeared. And they were all called Fred. So they were known as the Three Freds. And Horace Banner, this young man, was asked if he would go with another missionary to find out the location of these three missing men. The book is an incredible read. Eventually he found their remains. They had been caught, killed, and then burnt. When he came home on furlough, one of the mothers of the three Freds who was murdered said to him, If a hundred souls could come to Christ for every Fred who has been murdered, their deaths will be worthwhile. I knew a man who knew Horace Banner. And uh, we agreed to meet. And we met in a service station on the M6. And he said, "I'm, I'm going to show you the grave of Horace Banner. Very gentle man, and since, since then he's died himself. And so he took me to a small Cheshire village called Daresbury. Daresbury is where Lewis Carroll came from. And if you go into the church at Daresbury, there's a huge stained glass window with all the characters from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. What that has to do with the gospel, I haven't got the faintest idea. <laughs> but anyway, it's there. And he took me to the side of this little... Church of England graveyard, and, and he took me to the grave of Harris Banner. And I was stood there, and I felt I was on holy ground. And while I was stood there, the gentleman who knew him said, David, I knew this man. He said, in his old age, he used to walk around Warrington in a white mac. You would not have thought he was an evangelist. He said, but believe me, I know that this man single-handedly led over three hundred people to Jesus. It's one of those holy moments. Do you what's on his grave? Horace Hardman Banner. Pioneer missionary to the Indians of Brazil for 45 years. With the Lord. August 29th, 1974, age 68. My album is A Savage Breast. Where passions rage and shadows rest, without one ray of light, to write the name of Jesus there, to see a savage bow in prayer, be this my chief delight. And that's the independent Methodists. Let's pray together.
Father, John the Baptist said that he didn't feel worthy to even stoop down and be down at the feet taking off the sandals of the Lord Jesus. Who am I? And Father, there are men and women who have lived hundreds of years ago and even just a few decades ago. We don't feel worthy in their presence. Just ordinary people doing ordinary things and yet with extraordinary results. Father, we thank you for all that we've learned over these past three talks looking at the primitives and the Bible Christians and the independent Methodists of whom the world is not worthy. And yet, Lord, they're your servants. And Father, thank you for what we've learned this afternoon. Just very ordinary people. In one sense, their world a million miles from our world. And yet, Lord, they try to be true to their generation, but most of all, true to the Lord Jesus. And Father, we're not living in the 1970s. We're living in the 21st century. May we be 21st century people, but with that same passion and love for the Lord Jesus. Help us to learn from people's mistakes and to build on their strengths. And Father, we want to thank you for the freeness of the gospel. We know it's not free because your son paid the price. He paid the price that we may freely offer it. And Father, we just ask in prayer that we in our generation may do all we can to point people to our lovely Saviour. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. We love him and we're glad to be saved. And thank you, Father, that you've entrusted us with the glorious message that we have heard the joyful news. Jesus saves. Father, thank you that you are still a saving God. And we worship you in the Saviour's precious name. Amen. Amen.